So find Psalm 23, verse 2. Today is the second of three sermons from Psalm 23 with this title, The Good Shepherd Cares for Your Soul. And in this series each week, we're repeating eight important statements because of their eternal truth. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It's your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. Now, last week, we made four observations from verse 1. Number one, we are sheep. That's not a compliment. Sheep are dumb, weak, and defenseless. They're self-willed. They wander off from the shepherd, and they mindlessly follow other sheep. So bless God. Number two, we have a good shepherd. He leads us in the right paths. Jesus loves you, he leads you, and he protects you. So number three, verse one says, we will not lack. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything necessary for life and godliness. And then number four, we put it in the form of a question. Is he your shepherd? Do you follow him? Are you fully owned by him? If so, he will nurture and build your soul as he leads you. Let's read the next two verses in Psalm 23 to see more about how he cares for your soul. Verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The good shepherd cares for your soul by, number one, leading you into rest. Now look at the word makes in verse 2. That refers to an animal crouching on all four legs, a recumbent animal. So while the grass is green, the main point here isn't food for the sheep, it's rest for the sheep. And that's amplified by the next phrase in verse 2, he leads me beside still waters. Sheep are afraid of moving water. If they fall in, their fleece gets soaked and their weight takes them under. They still need water, though. But still water is usually stagnant water. So they're dependent on a good shepherd to build a dam at a little stream, and that way the sheep can drink from a fresh and still pool of water, and they can find rest. Now, this is a Davidic psalm, so David says this is what God did for him. And in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. So this is what Jesus does for us. He leads us into rest, but we don't rest well. Now, why don't we rest well? And I'm speaking for myself. Maybe you would disagree, but I think I'm pretty right about that. Well, number one, sheep are fearful. They don't have any defensive weapons. They have no claws, talons, or poison. All they can do is run and not very fast. Do you have trouble resting? Afraid of the economy or the momentum of the culture against biblical Christianity or the open corruption in government? Maybe you have trouble resting because of family turmoil. You're on the outside because you're a Christian. You might be fearful because you need to extract yourself from a difficult situation or you're facing an unsolvable problem or you have a foreboding future or you're just fearful for the future of your kids and your grandkids. I want you to know that David had significant moments in his life that I think brought fear into his life. In fact, let me give you an example. 
The maniacal king, King Saul, set out to murder him. So he sent an army after him. David found out about this and he ran for his life and he did something that completely defies logic. We might call it a panic move. 1 Samuel 21 says he fled to Achish, king of Gath. Gath was the first Philistine town across the border, but the problem with that was twofold. Number one, the Philistines were the enemies of God's people. And number two, a few years before this, David killed that giant named Goliath, Goliath of Gath. So Achish knew who David was. He said, ah, oh, this is David, the king of Israel. He knew David was the rightful king. And then he repeated a statement that both the Israelites and the Philistines knew. He said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Ten thousands of Philistines, that is. So 1 Samuel 21, or, uh, excuse me, yeah, 21.12 says, David greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. I bet he did. Under pressure, David made a decision that took him from bad to worse. So in order to escape, he feigned insanity. He scribbled on the doors of the city gate. He slobbered all over himself. The Bible says he disguised his sanity and acted insanely, and the ruse worked. Achish said, do I need one more madman in my kingdom? And David was able to escape. So the rightful king of Israel made a decision under pressure, and he suffered in many other ways, yet he was still able to tell us he had a shepherd who brought rest into his soul. Now, maybe you can't rest well this morning because while no one is after you, you continually wander away from the good shepherd. You don't want to go where he's leading. If you belong to Jesus, he may let you go your own way and he'll let you go your own way so you'll stop going your own way. Andrew Bonar was a pastor in Scotland in the 1800s, a colleague of Robert Murray McShane, who I often quote. He said that in the highlands of Scotland, a sheep would wander off into rocky crags, and the sheep would see green grass on a ledge several feet below, so he would make his way down to the ledge to get the grass, but then he had no way up or out. So he said a good shepherd would see that sheep down there, but instead of rescuing it, he'd allow it to remain there for days. He would wait until it was weak, and then he would rescue it. He waited until the sheep was weak because wanting to go its own way, if he went down to rescue it too early, the sheep might run away right off the ledge to its death. Remember, sheep aren't smart. And he said if he rescued that sheep and it continued to go its own way, the shepherd would take the rod and break one of its legs. Then he would bind it, splint it, and carry that sheep around until it was healed. Once healed, that sheep was bound to the heart of the shepherd and he no longer wanted to wander. If you're his and you keep going your own way, he'll do what is necessary to bring you back. In fact, for all of us, Hebrews 12, 6 says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And the reason is found in Hebrews 12, 11. He said, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, if your soul is troubled this morning, no matter what the reason is, how can you genuinely find rest? There's only one way. Sheep rest when they can see the shepherd. Sheep rest when they can see the shepherd. They'll only lie down when they feel safe. Seeing the shepherd brings security. They know he'll fight off predators. They'll know he'll stop the one that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Sheep rest when they can see the shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd, so how can we see him and be able to rest? I want to give you three quick thoughts. And this is a situation where you may come up with a better idea than I have. But number one, I think the way to see him is to saturate his truth in your mind. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, excuse me, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus and the Word are not one and the same, but they are most certainly inseparable. So God wants his people to live and breathe his word, to receive it inwardly in our soul. When we read it, to take time and say, what is this saying to me? To let it become, as one writer said, the marrow of our bones. Number two, if God gives you the ability to solve a problem, then do it. But some painful situations are not going to be solved by our ingenuity. So otherwise, and this can be a hackneyed statement, but you really do have to stop relying on your own strength. And instead, as Ephesians chapter 6 says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Whatever that painful or scary trial is, just continually give it over to the good shepherd. Lord, I'm struggling with this, please lead me. Lord, I'm struggling with this, please guide me. Lord, I'm struggling with this, please bring rest into my soul. Which leads me to number three. Don't let your view of him be obscured by taking everything in this temporal life too seriously. Release your grip on some of the things that bring you tension. In fact, how many things in life are really important? You know, I, I went to a, a place a couple weeks ago, a fast food place, and they got my order wrong. So I think I'll go on Facebook and, and complain about it. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? In fact, when something happens in your life, you often can't determine if it's good or bad. Every pastor has a sermon about that, by the way. What's good today might end up bad. What seems certain to be bad today, it might end up good. It might be in between. Is it good or is it bad? Give it a year or two. What's bad now might end up good. What's good now might end up bad. Or as Ron Dunn used to say, good and bad come on parallel tracks and they often arrive about the same time. So number one, he leads us into rest. Number two, he restores your soul. That's verse three. A believer's soul becomes depleted. Many things war against it. As time goes by, the thrill of learning and experiencing Jesus can fade. For example, you go to Mexico once and it's exciting, and we'll hear about that tonight. Go two or three times and have some problems? What seems exciting now might seem exacting then. You read God's Word. You read it and there's no suspense or surprise because you know how the story ends. You love Jesus so you don't quit, 
but you drag on in kind of a mediocre condition. There's no passion. You do your duty, but it just, it just, you're just doing your duty. Well, in his book, Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when this happens, go back to the beginning of your life and just retrace your steps. See all that God has done in your life. Your salvation testimony, the moments of special blessing God brought into your life. But let's go further than that. To restore our soul, Jesus knows what we need better than we know. So there are two things he might be doing right now to restore your soul. I'm just going to roll them out there and you see if either one of these fit your situation. Number one. What does a shepherd eventually do with a sheep? Well, he shears him. He removes his fleece and sells it for profit. But that fleece is the very thing that gives the sheep comfort. To a certain degree, it protects him from insects and bites. And a nice fleece adorns a sheep. I mean, it makes him look nice and maybe makes him feel good about himself. I've never asked a sheep about it, but that's possible. And along comes the shepherd who the sheep relies on, who he trusts. And that shepherd completely strips that sheep of the very thing he thinks protects him, comforts him, and adorns him. And back then, they would have used a crude, handmade cutting instrument so the sheep gets nicked and scarred here and there. He's left bleeding, naked, sheared, and cold. But what the sheep might not realize is that what he thought adorned him, that wonderful fleece, it was full of mud and burrs and ticks and manure. The coat was so heavy it weighed him down. And someday, that sheep might agree that being, sheep was one, or being sheared was one of the best things that could have happened to him. It was a reset in his life. Maybe that's what God's doing with you. But there's another scenario in which God restores, or Jesus restores our soul. Philip Keller was a shepherd who wrote a book on this, and he said sheep can innocently tip over, and it becomes a cast sheep. That's the term they use, cast. It accidentally turns over on its back, and once on its back, it can't get back on its feet. I've read that it's a pathetic sight, lying on its back, its feet in the air, it's this well-fed sheep frantically kicks and struggles. And no matter how much self-effort that sheep exerts, he cannot get back on its feet. And if the shepherd doesn't rescue it quickly, the weight of its body cuts off circulation, gases build up in its stomach, and it dies. So a good shepherd comes along and gently rights the sheep, but that might not be enough. It might take a while for that cast sheep to regain strength. So the shepherd will rub each limb to restart circulation. And then the sheep might walk away, but it'll stumble and fall. So the shepherd continues to help it and continues. And soon, that sheep is back in the flock, healthy and flourishing. That's another way the good shepherd restores us. Do either one of those two fit you this morning? Now, at this point, I want to bring up a danger that this series might have created. It's entitled Caring for Our Soul. It's important that our soul be restored, nurtured, and strengthened. 
if our soul is restored, nurtured, and strengthened, it's so we can pass the life of Christ on to others. It's not to keep it to ourselves. So I wonder this morning, do you know someone who needs their soul restored? You might write their name down right now, and I'll explain in a minute. This Vision 316 trip to Mexico was unusually fruitful. You'll, you'll probably hear this tonight, but I want to share it now. Larry Mary said 54% of the people at the clinic indicated they would follow Jesus. That's extraordinary. In other words, half the people made a profession of faith. They normally see 20%. Why such an outstanding difference? Four months prior to the clinic, the pastor of that church and those members prayed and fasted every Wednesday for the clinic. They prayed that people would come, that souls would be saved. They prayed for us. They prayed for finances to get the job done. They prayed for authorities to provide their approval. God gave that team so much favor that the policia took them from, to and from their hotel every day. A couple of you texted me pictures of you in the police car. In my first three seconds, I went, oh, what are we going to do? <laughs> well, they got themselves arrested. That's their tough luck. God restores souls through prayer. Christians need restored souls. The lost need regenerated souls. Our nation is degenerating into, we're late stage Pax Americana, which means we're almost toast. If Jesus has restored your soul, let's pour that out in prayer for other people. Your prayer counts. When we pray as a church, which is next Sunday night, you won't realize how much it counts until you get to heaven. So he leads you into rest. He restores your soul. Number three, he guides you into righteousness. That's verse three. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. We receive rest and restoration to live righteously. There are over a hundred references to paths or ways just in Psalms and Proverbs. And a path implies a start, a journey, a destination, and making it to that destination. We want to avoid taking unrighteous paths in our journey home. Now, Keller said sometimes the paths of sheep become ruts, and those ruts turn into gullies. That's a good analogy, not just for sheep. That applies to the lost, people who are without Christ. People blindly follow other people. Look at our culture today. Is it possible that you have walked in the wrong path for so long that your rut has become a gully, your gully has become a valley, and that valley is filled with people all going down the wrong path? The world today affirms every kind of sin, and they do it in the name of Jesus. Sexual sin, material sin, it's all written off by saying Jesus loves. But Jeremiah 21.8 says, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. So look at the path you're on right now. Does it look like a path leading to life? Or does it look more and more like a dark tunnel? Now, if this morning you would say, I'm going down the wrong path, then here's the invitation to you. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Become saved. Trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then follow the path of the Good Shepherd. You can know that you're on the right path. Because the good shepherd will lead his people into righteousness. Now, there are two kinds of righteousness. One is the kind of righteousness that Jesus imputes or credits to us. That's his righteousness, his sinless life, his atoning death. 
He credits that righteousness to us by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, an amazing verse. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God took our unrighteousness and put it on Jesus and took his righteousness and put it on us. That's been called positional righteousness. We're declared legally righteous. The theological term is justification. We're considered eternally righteous the moment we're saved. Our sins are wiped clean. But that's not what David is describing here. He's referring to practical righteousness, fleshing out what God gives to us in Jesus. So the good shepherd will always lead on righteous paths, but righteous paths in this world are often going to be difficult paths. There was a time when Jesus told the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. A nice little boat outing. He took them into a violent storm that scared them to death and beyond. And then he stopped the wind and the waves. And Mark 4:41 says they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They learned that day to have a healthy fear of him, but they also learned they could trust him. And they had the first clue that Jesus was God in human flesh. They would have never taken that path themselves, but it was a path of righteousness, Jesus growing them as disciples. Now, from our end of things, the right paths take work. Most of you are familiar with what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Well, here's the background of that. In Old Testament days, there were obviously no paved roads. From town to town, animals pulled wagons, people pulled carts, others walked. And after a while, ruts were cut into the sun-baked ground. So if you came to a huge rock, the rut just went around the rock. If you came to a gully, you just went down in it and up. No roads were built unless you were a king. If a king went on a trip, he sent heralds to the places where he was going, and the heralds would say, the king is coming, prepare the way. So the people went to work. Boulders were removed, gullies were filled in, the ruts were evened out, the road was widened, straightened, and smooth, all because the king was coming. These are the paths of righteousness in which we joyfully labor because our king is coming. So we remove these boulders of sin in our life. We make our paths straight by obeying God's word. We smooth out the way for his spirit to work in our life ungrieved and unquenched. He will lead us in those paths, but we have to walk in them. Now, some of you might say, you know, I started life so badly. Or I made a mess of my life years ago. Listen, it isn't how you start, although that matters greatly. You want to start with faith in Jesus and never look to the left or the right, but it isn't how you start. It isn't even how you continue, although that matters more. Right now what matters is how you finish, and you don't know the day of your finish. So if your start wasn't good or you haven't continued well, right now you can get on his righteous path. You don't have to look at the past with regret. Just get on the righteous path and know that your sins are forgiven. He leads you to rest. He restores your soul. 
He leads you into righteousness. Number four, he leads you for the sake of who he is. Look at the end of verse 3. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's easy to pass over that little phrase. This might be the best part of the whole psalm. Verse 3 says he leads us in the paths of righteousness, but what assurance do you have that he'll lead you home? The answer is in that phrase. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, what does that mean? Ezekiel 24 says, You will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways and corrupt deeds. Isaiah 43, I will blot out your transgressions for my name's sake. In the New Testament, Paul was a violent man, a blasphemer, a hunter of Christians. But he makes a remarkable statement in 1 Timothy 1. He said, God had mercy on me so that in Christ Jesus... He could use me as a prime example of his great patience, even with the worst of sinners. He did it for his name's sake. His name's sake is his reputation, his honor. Some say his glory, but in this context, I think it speaks to reputation. And here's why. We've said in this series that the who we are, our soul, determines what we do. Even with God, the what he does comes from who he is. He's full of mercy. He's overflowing with grace. And he is a God who cannot lie. And he says, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's a promise. So your soul can rest in him and have peace. He leads us to rest. He restores our soul. He leads us into righteousness, and he leads us for the sake of who he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you that those truths are in your word. And I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would seal those truths to our heart today. I pray for people here who do not know you as Lord and Savior. They're not born again. I pray that you would draw them to the Father this morning. I pray that you would convict them of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And you would also... Give them faith, give them hope, and I pray for every person that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and be born again right here at this very moment. And Father, I pray for that person who may be thinking about doing that. They may have a lot of adrenaline right now because I remember being in that situation. I pray you'd calm their heart and lead them to salvation this morning. Thank you for this church. Bless these people that are here today in every way. There are people who come in here this morning, Lord, with all sorts of heartaches and worries and fears. Always remind us that you are the good shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness and who restores our soul. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.